All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and I'm pleased to welcome back a great friend of the show, Adam Risky. Adam, how are you today, sir? I'm great. Thanks for having me back. Hey, man. Thanks for being back on here. So the last time you were on, it was uh, the episode was entitled Risky Observations First Quarter 2019. And the idea behind this new series that I wanted to introduce was I don't go to the movies for obvious reasons. Listeners, longtime listeners know I don't go to the movies very often. You are the polar opposite. You go to as many movies as possible, and I really value your opinion, so I thought, I thought, why not bring you on to let me know if all these movies I've missed in theater are worth checking out. So, happy to have you back. Yeah, I've got your back. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, now, when we left off on first quarter... It was, we recorded a week before Avengers Endgame came out, and the news that came out this week was that it has now become the highest grossing film of all time. Uh, that, of course, you need to take a couple things into effect. That uh, Avatar was 10 years ago. The cost of a theater ticket has gone up exponentially in that 10-year time, and the movie had to be re-released uh, to, uh, to meet that goal. So, Adam, first thing I'll ask you is, uh, you know, overall opinions on Avengers Endgame now that we're a few months out from that? And second, do you think this is a legitimate number one grossing film of all time? I'll answer the second part first, I guess. Um, Yeah, it's legitimate. I mean, they had to, as you pointed out, throw in a lot of qualifiers to get to that point. Um, You know, like they were basically at the point where they were like offering weed gummies to get you to go back (laughs) to the theater. Like, but you know, hey, Congratulations, I guess. Um, I, I'm still stunned that, and I, and I'm saying this as a, a person who more likes Avatar than doesn't like Avatar. I'm still shocked that Avatar is, was the highest grossing movie of all time for 10 years. Like that just doesn't register for me. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's interesting because I saw Avatar IMAX 3D 10 years ago and it was a, it was an incredible experience. But I remember like, after the movie was over, I was like, uh, okay, so I'll probably never sit through that again. And I have probably never watched that movie in its entirety since seeing it in the theater. If it comes on TV or something, bits and pieces, I'll start watching it. But I'm painfully reminded about how much that movie drags in a lot of parts. Yeah, and it, it just doesn't seem to have much of a cultural footprint. Like, if you if you went up to you know, an average moviegoer and said, Tony Stark, Captain America, they're like, oh, yeah. If you said, like, Neytiri, Jake Sully, they're like, what? <laughs> I mean, you look at movies, uh, for example, uh, like, like look at the cultural significance of something like The Dark Knight Rises. Like, people still reference Bane all the time. There's no references happening from Avatar. You're 100% correct. Yeah, whatever. I guess congratulations. It, I, the way I see the Avengers Endgame title is like Barry Bonds has the home run title. Yeah. It's like, okay, yeah, you've got it, but like, who cares? Exactly. There's a, there's a big asterisk next to the, uh, to the number. So what did you think of Endgame overall? Uh, overall, I liked it quite a bit. Uh, I thought that I, I started to feel this way around Avengers Infinity War, where you start to kind of realize what an accomplishment it is that they've been able to keep up a certain measure of quality for 10 years. And with the exception of a few movies that were a little underwhelming, they haven't had any catastrophes and they've really built up a lot of goodwill with their audience over the years. And Avengers Endgame has the, has the benefit of, getting a lot of those moments to pay off in kind of the same way as like a Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part two does. Um, so I think it's a very good movie. I think that one of the bummers about Marvel in general, just because they have so many films is that they can't stick with you for very long because you're always moving on to the next one. So like by the time I got to Spider-Man far from home, Avengers Endgame seemed to have less weight when if, say they took a break and didn't release Spider-Man until next year, I think I would still be thinking about Avengers Endgame more. Sure, sure, absolutely. For me, um, I did see it because we did record an episode about the film, but I saw it just in the worst possible conditions. Imagine that. So I had to work really late the night before. I didn't get home till about one o'clock in the morning. I was going to a 10 a.m. screening of the show and, you know, got the 
bought my two two Z seats and for some reason it wasn't in the typical movie theater I was in but I always get the same I17 and I18 seats but there was a problem with my seats and they wouldn't they wouldn't slightly recline back it was like being on one of those you know no frills budget airlines where the seats don't pitch back at all and so it and to couple that in it was a 4 hour experience with getting to the theater half an hour before half an hour trailers 3 hour movie I was dying in the theater. I was having the hardest time getting through the movie. But I, at the same time, completely agree with what you said. I respect what they've done. But it's a movie that I've I've already forgotten about. Like, I've, I've moved on from it. But I, again, I always stress, I'm not the target audience for this, for this particular mm-hmm. film. One thing I'll give them credit for is they surprised me in the tone of the movie. Because coming off of Infinity War, you would think that Endgame was going to be very self-serious. And... For the most part, Endgame was a lot more kind of light on its feet than I was expecting. Like, I I feel like they still kind of landed, like, the emotional punches that they wanted to. But then, you know, the whole bit with, like, the middle section, it's fun. And it's almost, like, more of, like, an Ant-Man and the Wasp kind of caper than, like, this big, like, the weight of the world is happening. So I thought that was interesting. Sure, absolutely. So moving on from Endgame, I want to start getting into some movies that I haven't seen. And one that was kind of caught my eye, and it looked like it was probably going to be a good time, was the movie Long Shot, which stars Charlize Theron and Seth Rogen. And uh, I'm just reading the Wikipedia, excuse me, the IMDb quick synopsis here. It says, journalist Fred Flarsky reunites with his childhood crush, Charlotte Field, now one of the most influential women in the world as she prepares to make a run for the presidency. Charlotte hires Fred as her speechwriter and sparks fly. How was Longshot? Uh, I, I liked it a lot. It's uh, really high up there in terms of the list of summer movies so far for me. Uh, it was nice to see just kind of a plain old romantic comedy that was well-written and had good performances with two actors who had a lot of chemistry together. It reminded me a lot of like the American president when Harry met Sally, that type of level of romantic comedy where it's sort of elevated because the people who are making it are, are capable and care about putting out a good film. I don't think that it really lands when it's taking the political angle, but I think when it's just trying to be, you know, a romance between two people who are, you know, in their thirties or 40, like early forties, late thirties, and have had like complications being able to maintain a relationship due to how they are or their profession. I think it has a lot of good insight and it's one of those movies where in the dialogue it feels like you're listening to real people talking and you're not listening to movie characters talking. Okay. Uh, any, without getting too deep into the political weeds here, any, any references in the film as far as, you know, kind of the world we're living in now? Yeah, they, they have um, one character played by Andy Serkis who they make into like this gross caricature and she's, he, he's more like a like a Roger Ailes, like Fox News or Rupert Murdoch type of guy. And then um, Bob Odenkirk plays the current president, and he's more of like a celebrity who played a president on TV and then became president and has little interest in his job. So obviously there's kind of like a it's it, it doesn't take hard to figure out the one-to-one comparison in that one. Sure, sure. Fair enough. Fair enough. Excellent. Um, I do have a good Peter story for that please, one. Please, please. So I saw this movie. Um, AMC has like every once in a while they'll send to Stubbs members like an advance screening notice. So I got to see it about a week early and I go to the theater and I'm sitting in my seat and it's a reserved seat and I'm just there by myself and I'm off on the end in an aisle. Right as the movie starts, uh, a woman by herself comes up and she walks up the, the aisle or, and she sits down next to me. And then she just turns to me and goes, good evening. And I said, Oh, hi. And then throughout the rest of the movie, she's just like, we're really high up. And I'm like, yep, we are pretty high up. And then anytime I laughed during the movie, she would like turn and look at me like as if we were on a date or something. And she was like checking in. It wasn't like, I can't believe you're laughing. It's like, Oh, this is what he thinks is funny. Good for him. It's starting. It's starting. All right. Awesome. So it was, yeah. So it wasn't like horrible. It wasn't a t- 
terrible theater experience, but it was it was more awkward than it needed to be. <laughs> it's okay. So you, there was there's you weren't able to get into your normal comfort level of watching a movie because now you feel like you were being judged on every move you made. I was almost like trying not to, and it, I was mad because the movie was making me laugh, but I was almost trying not to laugh because I'm like, I know she's gonna check in. <laughs> <laughs> And it, it, was there any any conversation exchanged at the end of the film? Oh no, no, okay, not at all. <laughs> all right, excellent. All right, yeah. so, so so moving on here, another movie that I again, I I suppose I understand the craze. Maybe I don't. I grew up in the eighties and the nineties, but uh, this seemed to be all the rage the weekend it came out, and that is uh, Pokemon Detective Pikachu. What what is this? I mean, is this something that's some okay? So let me ask you this: somebody yeah. who's never been into Pokemon at all, never played the the game, the augmented reality game that came out a couple of years ago, is this a movie that I could even sit down and enjoy? No, I I'll say that they do a fair enough job explaining the rules, so you have an inroad if you're a, a person who has no experience with Pokemon as a property, because that's how I am. Um, I went with my family and it's something that you put on for kids. And if it's their 10th movie they've ever seen, they think it's great. And while I'm sitting there trying to not fall asleep. (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. (laughs) The the movie like takes the story premise of who framed Roger Rabbit, basically where you know, real life characters are interacting with, I guess, ostensibly animated characters. And then there's a mystery and everything. But it's just such a nothing burger of a movie. And you're just sitting there and you're like so aware of their it's like the the benchmark they're trying to reach is just to not be terrible. And it's like, okay, well, you weren't terrible. You were just boring. So congratulations. I guess the question I'm going to have now is I'm going to, I'm going to interject a new question here. And that is, and we'll go back to the long shot and we'll go back to detective Pikachu. If this movie, if you're flipping through the channels and the long shot comes on, will you stop and watch it? Yeah, I think I would. Okay. Would you do that with detective Pikachu? No. Okay. So moving on to the next film, uh, released on May 17th, John Wick chapter three. Now this one, I can say I saw in the theater. This is, uh, this is one of these ones where I got pretty excited about it. And for my money, I wasn't let down. I just think that all three of these movies are on, on equal footing. And, uh, frankly, I just think they keep getting better. So what are your thoughts on John Wick Chapter 3? I like the John Wick movies um, much in the same way that I like the Mission Impossible movies, at least the recent ones since, like, Ghost Protocol on, where as long as it's Keanu Reeves or Tom Cruise doing action stuff, I'm all in and i think it's among the best things that are happening in movies whenever they get into the middle scenes i tend to lose a little bit of interest and um with john wick in particular i'm very 50 50 on enjoying the absurdity of the world building and also being very tired of it i i think like they're kind of getting into like the they're repeating themselves a bit with the continental and with the rules and with the assassins and stuff like that. So there's enough of the stuff that I like in the John wick movies, especially in John wick three, where I am very enthusiastic about it, but I would be um, not one of the camp that thinks that it's like a hundred percent a success. If uh, John wick three was on TV, would you stop and watch it? Depends on what scene it's on. Uh-huh. If the, if it's like in the middle where like he's in the desert, I probably would skip it. But if it was like a scene where, you know, a horse is kicking a guy in the face, of course, I'm leaving it on. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Yeah. So next one we have. All right. So this is going to become a recurring, uh, a reoccurring theme over the next few years. And that is, you know, the Disney Live action, if that's what we're calling it, live action uh, remakes of their beloved properties. And then the first one on our list today is going to be released on May 24th. And that's Aladdin starring Will Smith, directed by Guy Ritchie. Uh, How's this one? Uh, Yeah, this is one of those times where I ended up in the theater and I couldn't tell you how I got there. (laughs) Or I'm just like, what? What decisions in my life led to this? Or like you're very keenly aware of like. How even though you have no interest in what you're seeing, Disney's effectiveness as a marketing engine is more is stronger than your willpower. <laughs> so 
I'm sitting there and I'm watching the movie and it's not good. It's like watching a Christmas story live, <laughs> but in a theater, like everything feels like they did it in the first take or like you're watching really seasoned performers at Disney world to perform Aladdin. And there's just for whatever reason, somebody filmed it with a GoPro. It's a weird experience, but then we're going to get into this later when we talk about the Lion King. When I saw the Lion King and then I thought back of Aladdin, it made me feel like I was being too hard on Aladdin, even though I know I'm not. <laughs> what What are we thinking about Guy Ritchie's career over the past 10 to 15 years, post Lockstock, post Snatch, even post Rock and Rolla? What, what are we thinking about him as a director? I, th- I think whatever signature he had as a director is only admissible or permissible in small doses nowadays he's a director for hire and then he has like his little guy Ritchie moments but like he can't develop his own thing anymore and he has to play ball with the studios so i think like the fact that you know he got aladdin it's probably good for extending his career um but i don't think that he is going to be able to you know use this as a as a way of getting another quote-unquote Guy Ritchie movie made. I think he's just going to be, like, bouncing from property to property, and then they'll let him do, like, one little Guy Ritchie thing in the movie, like in Aladdin. For whatever reason, they do, like, in the middle of one of the songs, they do this, like, weird speed ramping thing where it's like the song is moving faster than the people singing it in the choreography, so then somebody in the editing room just, like, cranked it up to make it look like they moved, like, twice as fast. <laughs> it's very weird, and they do it, like, once or twice in the movie, and then they never do it again. That was going to be... Okay, so you answered the question for me. I was going to ask you if you saw any of his signature stuff in there, because I have to imagine a movie like Aladdin is a is a paint-by-numbers you know, uh, made by committee, uh, pre-visualized from start to finish. And, you know, it makes me wonder why they even bring somebody like Guy Ritchie in. But you're right. He's just probably part of the the big studio machine now. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, wh- one thing I will give the movie credit for is it looked like they put a lot of uh, time and effort into building practical sets because it definitely felt like you were on a back lot somewhere or like a section of a Disney theme park was where they shot this movie. And it's very um, specific and detailed. So I, I give them credit for that. That That's that's the thing. Like, at least there's some kind of tactileness to the movie. Um, but I, it, it, when you're sitting there watching it, you can't help but think, like, why am I watching this? I should just watch the cartoon. Yeah, interesting. So if Aladdin's on TV, do you stop and watch it? No. The, the next one on the list here is Brightburn. And a couple of things I want to say about this before I turn it over to you. This is um, to watch the marketing for this film. It's it's a movie that uh, wants you to believe that James Gunn was the director of the film. It's just the way they they market films like this. And it's a it's a tricky little move they use from time to time. I thought the premise for this sound really interesting. You know, the, the official synopsis on IMDb says, what if a child from another world crash landed on Earth? But instead of becoming a hero to mankind, he proved to be something far more sinister. So it's sort of a play on on, you know, the, the early days of, of Superman. Um, the only issue I had as far as the trailer goes is it seems like a fascinating idea, but it also seemed like a very contained story. And then when I looked at the budget, which was minuscule, uh, I said, all right, well, I'm going I'm to wait to see what Adam says about this. So, so how was Brightburn? It's an interesting failure. I'll put it that way. I saw it back to back with Aladdin and that was like cinema whiplash that day because Aladdin is so test marketed and like designed for you to come out of the theater feeling happy and joyful. And Brightburn is almost like make tra- it's like going out of its way to say fuck you to the audience. <laughs> so, um, th- basically what it is is if you've seen The Omen, Brightburn is the omen, but it's the kid is Superman. Gotcha. That's basically that's basically what it is. And where I'll say the movie was a bit disappointing is that you basically just sit there and you know where it's going and then you just wait it out. And that's there's not really any surprises. It's just it, it is what you think that it is. There's moments in it that are very tough to watch um, because either they're 
they're violent and mean spirited in a way that something like Pet Cemetery 2 is, or like every once in a while you'll see a mainstream horror movie where you're like, wow, that was like, that just is really ugly. And it makes me feel really bad. And that's kind of how Brightburn was. So it was effective in that way. There's one, I, I won't spoil it, but there's one death towards the end that I, I still think about it because it's so nightmarish in terms of how it's portrayed and the person's reaction to like figuring out what's going to happen to them. It's very um, creepy. Uh, so I'll give it credit for that. I, I heard after the fact that there was going to be this twist that they were saving for a sequel. They already had like a sequel in mind of what they wanted to do. And I wish that they took that element and put it into the first movie because I think it would have been a, a really pleasant surprise. Cause sometimes when I'm watching these horror movies and like, it's very much, you know, just watching ugly things happen, you're looking for something as like a rooting interest or like some kind of an adversary for the bad person, like a protagonist. And I think that if they um, added that element to Brightburn, it would have been more interesting because it would have taken you by surprise and given you like, you know, somebody to root for um, towards the end, but they didn't go that route. So it's just like your kind of, you know, slasher movie in a way. Uh, I don't know the answer to this. I don't know. Can you speak to, is this set in any of our existing cinematic extended universes? Um, it's, it, it's hinted at that it's part of the same universe as the movie Super. Did you ever see Super? It's a James Gunn movie yep, from about absolutely. 10 years ago. Yep, that, talk yeah, about a violent so, movie. Yeah, yeah. So it's hinted that the, it's like the character in Brightburn is another kind of part of the rogues gallery of villains that would be part of the Super universe. So if uh, Brightburn was on TV, would you stop and watch it? I might be curious and stop and watch it because, it, it, like I said, it's it's a very intriguing movie, but it made me feel pretty awful after I saw it, too. Uh, next one on my list is uh, is Booksmart, which I actually did see in the theater, and I have a fantastic theater story, which I have to save because uh, I'm uh, happy to announce there's another movie theater rant episode coming out about this one. I'll just say this. I saw this movie in Sarasota, Florida. I was on, a, on vacation. A lot of really interesting things happened to me. So that's just a little, little tease there for an upcoming episode of Movie Theater Rant. Uh, as far as the movie itself, I, I just enjoyed it the hell out of it. I thought it was delightful. I thought it was really funny. I thought it was really smart. Sort of reminded me a lot of Super Bad, but I thought it was a smarter movie than Super Bad, though I'll say I think Super Bad is a funnier movie. What are your thoughts on Book Smart? Uh, yeah, th this was one of those movies that, Something happened to me where it usually doesn't, where I, I was sitting there watching Booksmart and I felt for the first 20 minutes or so um, very much too old for it. And I, I felt like when I go by like electronic hookahs at Spencer's Gifts where I'm like, I'm just going to go in and out of here because I don't belong here anymore. <laughs> That's kind of how I felt when I was watching Booksmart. It felt like super bad for millennials, whereas I have super bad and I have my own comedies and like. You know, this isn't for me. But then as the movie went on and they they started going to like different parties, it took on this more episodic, like absurdist kind of angle. And a lot of the supporting characters, like the 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 friend who's like the rich kid who like rents out his own boat for his own party <laughs> or like the, the drama student girl who's just like a basket case. Like I thought they were so funny and it kind of gave the movie like almost like a Harold and Kumar like adventure s like quality that it made me really love the movie. And one thing I'll say is that uh, Olivia Wilde directed the hell out of this movie, especially because comedies are usually so lazily directed. And this has like a lot of energy and a lot of uh, just kind of unique tone things that she does um, that I, I really look forward to the next movie that she does. I, I, th I think that they took what could have been, you know, what good boys looks like, where it's just like, oh, isn't it funny that kids are swearing? And like, they just elevated it to such a degree where it made it one of the best movies of the summer for me. Absolutely. And it's, it's terribly disappointing that the movie's gross is globally is $22 million. I mean, that's a, that's a shame. And I, I saw it opening weekend and I was one of six people in the theater. I mean, nobody was going to see this movie and it's a shame. I wonder how this was marketed to teenagers because the weird thing is I felt like 
it was kind of more aimed at film buffs than like a mainstream audience for some reason. It seemed like something that was on everybody's radar if you like have a blog or a podcast, but I'm not sure like if kids in high school really gave a shit. And that's one thing I can say about that is I may have been the youngest per I'm 41. I may have been the youngest person in the theater. Again, there was no teenagers. They were all going to see Aladdin because that was playing at the same time at this theater. So yeah, poorly marketed. I would agree with you. Yeah. So if this if I'm Booksmart, you come across Booksmart on TV, you finishing it? Yeah, definitely. I, I, I'd be surprised if this didn't make my top 10 of the year list. Okay. Uh, next movie on the list, the trailer gave me so much anxiety that it, it the trailer itself made it look like it, a representation of everything I think is wrong with the big summer spectacle films. And that is Godzilla, King of the Monsters. So I haven't seen it. Made $378 million dollars worldwide that tells me that this is probably a box office failure because a movie like this probably cost at least two double that for marketing how was godzilla king of the monsters yeah i'm i'm in the same boat as you um i i want to like godzilla movies and like king kong movies um but i i think that i need to just come to the realization that i don't like i like the idea of them but in practice i hardly ever like them and godzilla king of the monsters i think is one of the worst ones it's dumb in a way that you just don't see much anymore it felt dumb like in a late 90s kind of way but not in an endearing fashion it just felt like insulting like i'm too smart for this movie and i don't take that air of superiority usually i just felt i haven't had that since like jurassic world fallen kingdom where i'm like this movie could be so much smarter if it just wanted to be but it didn't and i the when you see two cgi monsters fighting each other it loses its effectiveness unless you like really kind of I don't know, stage it well. Like the, the the complaint with Godzilla 2014 was not enough Godzilla, and I agreed with that. But then in this one, they solved that by like giving you a lot of Godzilla and a lot of like Ghidorah and Mothra and Rodan. But then, you know, if you see that for over an hour and it's just monsters banging into buildings and bashing into each other, it becomes just this visual white noise. And after a while I fell asleep and I was watching it in an IMAX theater. And do you know how hard it is to fall asleep in an IMAX theater? <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, that's fucking awesome. <laughs> so, okay. So with, 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 uh, with Godzilla King of the Monsters, is this something that if you watched on, you came across it on TV, you'd continue to watch? No, no. All right. So no. the next, the next one on my list, this one, Okay, we got to talk a little bit about Rocket Man for a moment because I think you and I were both of the mindset that the trailer looked a little bit ridiculous, and it, it you know we're getting into you know something is hit, Bohemian Rhapsody hit, so now it's time for the music bio pick craze to kick off. And by uh, from everything I've been reading, we're going to be getting a lot of these, but I like to point out a couple things. One, the global box office on Rocket Man landed at 176 million, which is 20, little less than 20% of that of Bohemian Rhapsody. And I really feel like Bohemian Rhapsody has landed in the public pop culture lexicon far more than this film has. I surprisingly have heard good things about this movie, especially the performance that Taron Egerton gives. So I'd be curious. How was Rocket Man? Uh, this is one of my favorite types of experiences in a theater where I go into it with this preconceived notion that something is going to be really shitty. And then I come out of it feeling like such a jerk because the movie is great. And Rocket Man is pretty great. And I say that because, especially if you compare it to Bohemian Rhapsody, this movie has so much more emotional heft and uh, filmmaking just style and skill than the, the other one does. Um, what I think this movie does really well is it sort of uses the music in a way where it informs Elton John's state of mind. So it's much more of a musical than a Bohemian Rhapsody, which is like, you know, and then this happened and then this happened and we have to fit this song in. So we're going to do it for this montage and everything. Whereas with Rocket Man, you know, they'll have a song uh, just kind of like incorporate into like his emotion at the moment. So it might be incongruous with where it came in his career, but 
it's like okay well this in this maybe you know this later song was based off of this moment from his childhood so he's going to sing it as a kid and i thought it was like a really interesting like effective way to tell the story and it's also very much in like a goodwill hunting type of way a very sensitive movie about somebody who's going through a lot of emotional pain and i thought that they affected they they showed that really well um there's a few too many scenes of him just kind of you know being awash in alcohol and things like that the typical rock star thing but i think overall it's really quite good and then if Rami Malek got an Oscar for Bohemian Rhapsody. Taron Edgerton should have like his face carved into Mount Rushmore. Okay. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Well, that's interesting. So, so it's safe to say we, we may have been wrong on the last episode. I was totally wrong. Yep. Oh, okay. Excellent. You see, listeners, we can admit when we're wrong about things. That's the important thing. That's yeah. So, okay. It's liberating. Try uh, it more often. <laughs> well, this I, this, I don't know if this movie's out on VOD yet, because I may watch this tonight. Because after hearing that, I'm, I'm, I, it sounds to me like I'm going to be all in. So Yeah, the, I, think, I think it comes out on Blu-ray at the end of August. So probably VOD, like middle of August, somewhere okay. around there. All right. So definitely a movie that if you came across, you would continue to watch it. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know if it has like tons of rewatchability, um, but I would definitely watch it again. Okay. All right. So moving on to the next one. Uh, I'll just ask, uh, Dark Phoenix, I mean, what are we doing? Is this anything <laughs> w- w- worth watching? <laughs> okay, so Dark Phoenix also fits into one of my interesting movie-going trains of thought, which is a movie that's so shit on that I find ways to defend it because <laughs> I feel bad about I feel bad for it. It's like when people were making fun of Tom Cruise because he was in love with Katie Holmes. And I'm like, I know he's acting like a schmuck, but he's in love. Yay. (laughs) So I'm like, why can't we be happy that somebody's in love? Um, So Dark Phoenix is like the runt of this X-Men cinematic universe litter. (laughs) And I see it and it's like getting beat up by all the other puppies. It's getting beat up by the days of future past puppy and the X2 puppy (laughs) and stuff. And I'm just like, I'm like, I want to adopt Dark Phoenix because I just want to get it out of this situation. So um, I've become sort of the unofficial cheerleader of Dark Phoenix, even though I recognize it's maybe a two-star movie. Okay. Uh, Let me ask you this just right off. I mean, right off. What's the best X-Men movie of, of them all? What's the most entertaining one for you? Are, are you counting the Wolverine stuff? Uh, or I, get, I can. I mean, the, proper. I mean, we can we can we can include it in the, in that extended universe. Which is the most entertaining film? I, I would think Logan would be my answer, but I haven't seen them all. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with Logan or X2 if you're just counting all the ones with all the X-Men in it. So it's going to be interesting to see what what Disney does with this, because this was a 20th Century Fox property. This was this movie was made before Disney uh, uh, swallowed up 20th Century Fox. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Excellent. This, this was the last of their. This was one of the last of the Fox movies that they were burning off. Um, I think after this year, they don't have any ones that will be going under the Fox banner at all. Be under 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 Disney. So I I don't know. I mean, like Dark Phoenix was. It's just the same X Men movie all over again. And it's just sort of weak and pathetic at this point. But it made me like it made it endearing in a way. It's so weird because this is supposed to be the last X-Men movie of this cycle. And like they seem aware of that. But for whatever reason, there's no gravitas to the thing at all. It's very strange. Okay, so what's the rewatchability on this one if you came across it on TV? I think I might, like, ironically watch it. Um, here's one. And now this is interesting. This is an interesting one. This is going to be the fourth one in the franchise. And the first one that I had zero interest in seeing. I saw Men in Black in 97. I saw Men in Black 2, 2002. Uh, I'm not sure how many years ago Men in Black 3 came. These are all, like, opening weekend movies I went to go see. And enjoyed all of them. I think Men in Black 2 has its issues. But there, if you know the story behind Men in Black 2, sort of the how they had to change the entire third act because of 9-11, and the entire third act took place in the World Trade Center, you give that movie a bit of a pass because they really had to scramble to, to try to salvage what they had completed. So Men in Black International... The trail, I mean, look, if a trailer doesn't even grab my attention, I mean, what are we doing? So tell me your thoughts on Men in Black International. Uh, Men in Black International is the second worst movie I saw this summer. Um, it's 
I joke with uh, my friends at F This Movie uh, about how every movie that Sony makes just looks like Sony the movie. And <laughs> that's definitely how I feel about Men in Black. It's like they're very concerned about you seeing the Vio, <laughs> but like they don't care about the script. <laughs> or they're just like, we need something pretty to put up on like an LCD in Times Square. But they are like, oh, we need a screenplay. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. Like this movie is just so pathetic. There's no reason for it to be. It just has nothing. It doesn't even want to tell a fun story. It just like, it's like having a bunch of men in black action figures and giving it to your least imaginative child and saying like, put on a show for me. And then (laughs) no, if they're least imaginative, but super like aware of PC culture child. (laughs) So it's like, it's weird. Um, I saw this at the theater that's in my neighborhood that I really hate. And I, it was raining as I started walking. So I had to sit there watching this wet from the rain. And I was just like, this is the worst experience I've had in a very long time. It's directed by F. Gary Gray. And, you know, he, his real, his first breakout movie was 95's Friday. And he's yeah. gone. He's gone on to do some pretty big studio projects, and uh, yeah. he, and then you know he also did Straight Outta Compton, which I think is a very good film. And this is kind of maybe the Guy Ritchie thing, where he's just doing the studio thing because that's what's available right now. Would you agree? I do. Yeah, and I read a lot of like behind the scenes, um, kind of in the aftermath of this movie's box office failure. They were saying how F. Gary Gray and the producer of the Men in Black uh, franchise, including this movie, were at odds about how things were going to go. And yeah, this is one of those things where the first Men in Black was just kind of lightning in a bottle and you can't really repeat it. It's sort of like Ghostbusters, where it's it's not going to work again. And yeah, it's kind of just a self-contained idea, really. Because once you once you have, like, Will Smith in the first movie as the audience proxy, like, learning about this whole strange universe, once it becomes known to him or to you, where is there to go? Yeah, so yep. exactly. Yeah, Men in Black International, yeah, Black International. One thing I did think was kind of funny was, okay, like, in the first Men in Black, you know, they recruited Will Smith. And then in this one, it's just Tessa Thompson being like, I know about this secret organization called Men in Black, and I'm going to force my way in. And it's just kind of like, okay. (laughs) Um, Like if you you were like a shitty baseball player, (laughs) and then you go to like, you know, Wrigley Field, and you're like, I want to play for the Cubs today. And they're just like, are you going to leave? And they're like, and you're like, nope. And that's it. (laughs) You see, my dreams to play for the Patriots, they're, 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 I'm still holding on to them. It's going to happen someday. I'm just going to show yeah. up. Yeah, she's like Ru- she's like Rudy, but <laughs> Men in Black gets her Notre Dame. <laughs> That's it. Okay. All right. All right. So, so I'm, I'm, the rewatchability factor on this is zero, correct? Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, tell me about Shaft. Uh, well, I've got a good theater story for Shaft. Um, I'll save that for, for after I give you my little review of it. It's not good, but it wasn't unwatchable. Um, it reminded me a lot of like a Rush Hour 2 era type of action comedy. It was very, it very much leans into the comedic aspects of it. Um, it's not trying to be, you know, like a, social satire well i guess it kind of is but it's not trying to be like a black exploitation movie that you take seriously at all it's just more kind of the adams family 21 jump street type of tempo but uh yeah i mean it's very unpolitically correct and it kind of like is reveling in that in kind of a grand torino kind of way so it's sort of uncomfortable but it's watchable. It's not particularly good, but I guess I give them credit for at least trying something different with it and not just repeating the John Singleton movie. But uh, my theater story for this one, and this is probably the weirdest thing I've seen in a theater in a long time. You know, Samuel L. Jackson is no stranger to like using the N word in his movies. So there's like a scene where he says like N word, what? And then um, this kid in my theater like just loudly goes n-word what 
and he was white <laughs> and it was very awkward. And for whatever reason, I saw this maybe like three weeks into its run. The theater was full of families, like as if this was Toy Story 4. <laughs> So I thought that was very interesting. And I saw it like on a Sunday night. So like he said that and then like it was dead silent. And I was just like, oh, OK, that's a teachable moment. And then um, after the movie was over, they played the new Shaft theme song and it's called Too Many Shafts. And it's just like it's by like Flo Rida. It's like one of those like awful like auto tune like rap songs. I think it was Flo Rida. And then. I was sitting in the front section, like in front of the, the, the stadium seating section. And then these two kids like run down the stairs from the stadium seating and then just start dancing like in the aisle to the too many shaft songs. So it's like watching the opening credits of do the right thing where like Rosie Perez is dancing to fight the power, but it's like three children and like the custodian who cleans the theater is like trying to walk around them so that like he can clean, but they're just like dancing to the whole song. Like they're at like someone's bar mitzvah or wedding or something. And the whole time I'm just sitting there being like, is this their favorite movie? Like, is this the movie that makes these six year olds love film is that they saw the, sh- the second reboot of Shaft and it was weird, but like, I, I can't say that I I'll ever forget it. <laughs> uh, I was looking at the, <laughs> the box office and it's the 20 million domestically, but it says Netflix release overseas. So that's yeah. a, that's an interesting thing. So I imagine we're going to see it co- pop up on Netflix relatively soon. I would imagine. Uh, no, it's uh, internationally. It was released on Netflix. They didn't even release it in theaters. So okay. they did like they did with Annihilation. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, so what's the rewatchability on on Shaft? Oh, it, it, I'd say it's like a one and done. The only way I'd ever watch it again is if for whatever reason I got one of those like DVD four packs and Shaft was on there. <laughs> I might watch it then just because I'm watching the other movies, but it's, it's not good. Okay. Uh, Toy Story four is the hype for this movie real. Uh, I mean, sure. Like it's the same movie as two and three. So I, I like it. It's good. It's funny. It's sweet. It's got some interesting emotional stuff at the end. I think like the last act is by far better than the first and second acts to a to such an extent that it kind of tricks you into thinking the movie's better than it is. Um, but I don't know. I'm kind of done with Toy Story a little bit. Like, I feel like they've said what they're going to say and now they're just repeating themselves. And other than it just being like a fun experience, I don't really get a whole lot out of it anymore. But um, I don't know. With that being said, like, I think it's much more interesting for adults than it is for kids because it's all about like parenting and about you know uh your purpose in life and everything like that and it's very like existential i yeah i don't i don't know it's an interesting movie but i i just would prefer to see even if it's not as good as a toy story 4 i would prefer to see like pixar make an original movie over another sequel to toy story absolutely i i agree with that uh Made uh, $860 million, uh globally, which I guess it's still technically in theater, so it might hit that billion-dollar mark. But, mm. uh, but that yeah, that's interesting. Uh, what's the rewatchability on Toy Story 4? Um, I'd probably say for me personally kind of low just because I if I ever rewatch Toy Story movies, I tend to watch the first one and maybe the second, and that's about it. Gotcha. Um, but I do have a theater story for this one. Um, I saw this opening night, and... It was about like a 10, 1030 show. And it was almost all adults. There was really no children in the theater, um, but it was pretty full. And throughout the last 20 minutes of the movie, I just heard like loud snoring, like nonstop loud snoring. And it was two people snoring. It was like you'd hear like it was like two, <laughs> like whales, like communicating with each other. Um, and it continued like through the <laughs> through the end credits and as i was walking down the steps of the stadium seating i looked and in the front row there was uh this couple like laying down in the recliner like turning towards each other both just like snoring like they were laying in a bed it looked like the couple in titanic like that were kissing <laughs> each other when they know that the water is coming in like <laughs> 
it, but they were snoring and like, I was so tempted to like take a picture, but I did it. Cause I was just like, that's weird, but it was weird. And like these people, like the credits were over and they were still snoring. And I just wanted to like see the people have to come in and wake them up. Oh. Like the people who work in the theater come in and wake them up. But they definitely ruined like the end of the movie for a lot of people. <laughs> I can't. I know. He said, you brought up the Titanic reference and I was just like, it's so visual the way you describe that. That's what they look like. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> All right. Okay. So it's like the Titanic scene. If like the woman's wearing sweatpants that say juicy on the ass. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so the next movie on the list is what I actually, I actually did see. And that's the, the child's play remake. And I just want to say this about the film, uh, call it by a different name, give the characters, uh, different names, and I think you've got a really unique and interesting movie that I actually rather enjoyed. I understand why it had to be a child's play film. That's the only way you were going to get it marketed. That's the only way you're going to greenlit a little budget. But, uh, you know, when a remake decides to really do something drastically different and not just go for a shot for shot remake, I, I can appreciate that for as much disdain as I have for remakes. So I, I actually found myself pleasantly surprised by child's play. What about you? Yeah, the, the, I'm in a weird spot with this movie because I didn't think it was bad. I thought it was better than it was. I was expecting it to be, but I came out of it with like a just big, like, why, like, what's the point? Cause even if you're, even if you reinvent things, which they do in this movie, I don't think any of the decisions like on, unto themselves are better than, you know, Chucky being possessed by a voodoo priestess with the soul of a serial killer. Like, I mean, that's more kind of fun and kitschy than like him being, you know, what he is in the remake. And, um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it was, it was fine, but just it, it I definitely left the theater with, with like, what are we even doing here? Yeah. Like what, like, why are we like, is this what cinema is going to be where we're just repeating ad nauseum the same ideas from the 80s and 90s because one thing like if you look back at this decade from 2010 on there's not a lot of properties that were like born out of this decade it's a lot of just repeating ones that were popular in the previous three and i'm wondering like the next evolution of filmmakers because they grew up on that are we just going to get like Spider-Man 40 or are we going or are they going to come up with some new stuff like what are they going to be reverential of you know no i mean that's that's exactly it um what's the rewatchability for child's play cuz i i could sit through that again i wouldn't ever seek it out but i think like if it was on i would maybe watch it Okay. All right. So the next one on the list is, is Spider-Man Far From Home. Uh, you, you said it brilliantly earlier. Like, this is a movie that arguably should have been released a year later, but the shareholders would never have allowed that. So that being said, how is Spider-Man Far From Home? So did, did you see Spider-Man Far From Home? I have not. Okay. It's fun. I, I liked it. I liked it more than Spider-Man Homecoming. I think, like, they handle the action better in this one. It feels more like a like a real action movie as opposed to just a teen comedy. Although there, it is like a lot of teen comedy. I, I, th I, this one felt a little bit more like a good marriage of the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, just in kind of tone with the, because there's a lot of like social embarrassment type of things. And then Peter seems a little bit more, tortured than he is in like homecoming where he's very happy-go-lucky and things like that um and like the marvel universe um the way i was talking to some friends about it is it's very much a marvel movie first and a spider-man movie second okay because i think they know that we're sort of tired of like the spider-man origin story however it doesn't really have like a much of a personality unto itself it almost feels like spider-man is just you know an extension of tony stark um and not really his own character but overall i think it's like jake gyllenhaal is really fun and i i liked the movie i had a really good time i saw it a second time so um and that was just out of you know hey i really had fun with this experience and i kind of want to just have like you know a fun night out at the movies again so i i will say that it reminded me a lot of um 
like Ant-Man and the Wasp in terms of it's just very watchable and fun to, to, to experience. Do you think at any point during the production of this film that Jake Gyllenhaal in full costume got a, caught a glimpse of himself in the mirror and said, what am I doing? Do you think that happened at all? Maybe. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think like it's, it, it, it could have been that, or maybe like it was sort of liberating for him that he, you know, didn't have to be serious in a movie once. That's, that's so it. You know what? That's a good point. That's a good point. I was just thinking about that. Cause the trailer, I just remember when you first see him on screen in the trailer. I was just like, Jake, what's going on, buddy? I mean, I mean, you, yeah. you, you've got such a, an interesting body of work. You're, what are you doing in a Marvel film? I will say this though. Um, the stuff with him in the suits and stuff in the trailers, they, I think they make it look a little bit more earnest than it is in the movie. In the movie, it's a little bit more tongue in cheek. Okay. Okay. F- fair enough. All right. Yeah. So what's the rewatchability? Obviously you've seen it twice. So I'll, I'll take it that there's a good rewatchability with this film. Yeah. Yeah. I think I would watch it again. Okay. Uh, did you see Stuber? I did. And what's the story on Stuber? Because uh, all I know is that you had uh, Dave Batista the weekend after it came out, kind of go on a bit of a, a Twitter tirade about the the, the 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 failure at the box office. Is the failure oh, warranted? Oh, I didn't know that he went on a Twitter tirade. Was it just like that they weren't promoting it well enough? Yeah, I mean, it was. Yeah, he was kind of just saying, you know, everyone needs to go see this movie. Why isn't anyone seeing this movie? Oh, yeah, that's exactly what you want to see from your movie star. <laughs> So. It doesn't seem desperate at all. No. Um, yeah, no, I, it's not good. I mean, like, I, I don't know what you want. <laughs> I mean, like, it, like Dave Batista, it's a lazy action comedy where, for whatever reason, two very funny, likable actors with Kumal Nanjiani and Dave Batista just, it just doesn't work on screen. Um, the action's lazy. The, movies funny every once in a while but not really it feels a lot like shaft in the way where it's like this throwback to i know that they want it to seem like a throwback to like midnight run or whatever like that type of level of action comedy but it feels like just rush hour three it's um it just feels tired and kind of out of out of step um so i don't yeah I, i i i I didn't think it was horrible, but I just kind of left the theater being like, all right, I'm going to forget that on my way to the car. Well, it's interesting because the movie's directed by Michael Douse, and he did the 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 goon movies, the hockey movies with yeah. uh, Sean William Scott. and But he also directed one of my all-time favorite movies, which came out, I want to say it was 2005, and it's called It's All Gone Pete Tong. And this was when I was really heavy into the DJ culture. I was DJing full time. And it's, it's about a, you know, a larger than life superstar DJ. And I, I, I really encourage everyone to seek it out. It's a really entertaining film and it's got a lot. So more heart than the movie deserves. You would, you wouldn't expect it from the first 20 minutes of the film that it, it really finds it, it becomes very charming. All right. So, uh, rewatchability on Stuber probably. No. No. Okay. No. Uh, if you want, yeah, if if you want like your Dave Batista fix or Kumal Nanjiani fix, there's better movies to get that. So okay, uh, let's talk about Crawl for a moment. Uh, as yeah. somebody who lives in Florida, and you know, uh, hurricanes and allig- alligators—that's something we uh, were constantly on the lookout for down here. So, how did this movie work out for you? Uh, it was it was good. I I had fun. It it reminded me a lot of like a late nineties kind of creature feature type of movie, like a deep blue sea or, um, or Lake Placid. So, um, I, I had a good time with it. It's, it was surprisingly more mainstream than I was expecting it to be because it was from Alexander Aja and he's directed a lot of like really gory horror films like the Hills have eyes remake and piranha 3d. And this is pretty reserved in comparison in terms of the violence. It's more about suspense, but it's definitely um, suspenseful. And there were times in the movie where I, I, I never did, and I was never, like, serious about it, but, like, 10% of me wanted to leave just because I was tense for so long because you're in this enclosed space with alligators, like, nearby, um, that it just was a little uncomfortable. And I give them a lot of credit for realism, I guess, because you definitely feel 
like these actors are going through hell because they're consistently like wet and dirty and like screaming and it's a very physical performance that um that the two leads give uh so overall i thought it was i thought it was really good um i have one pet peeve with the movie which is something that horror movies do sometimes is you go through this like super suspenseful experience and then in the end credits, they immediately like suck the energy, that energy away by playing like a jokey novelty song. <laughs> and Crawl does that. And the only time I've ever seen that work is with an American werewolf in London. But with other movies, when they do that, it just, you, you know, the movie's got you. It's got you like under its spell. And then it immediately just like, sh- like throws you to the ground. And I'm like, oh, I d- just. It's such a small thing, but I feel like it makes a difference. How's the rewatchability on Crawl? Uh, maybe like if it was, you know, October and I was in the mood for like an alligator movie, I would put it on, but <laughs> probably not. Gotcha. Uh, let's talk about The Lion King for a moment, because this is the one yeah. still out in theaters, still seems to be going strong. It's got a $600 million global box office take so far, directed by Favreau, who also did The Jungle Book. Um, I, again, I, I take exception to the idea of a live action remake, but I believe this one was a complete CGI creation. Does this movie even need to exist? No, there is no reason at all for this movie to exist. It's my least favorite movie of the summer, without a doubt. It's, I would have walked out of it if I could have, but I was in the middle of a row and everybody had their feet up like with recliners. <laughs> So I couldn't get out, but I knew like 15 minutes in, I'm like, oh, this is going to be like a real waiting game. Like, I just need to like get out of here. So I hope you have a few minutes because I really have to lay into the Lion King <laughs> 2019. Um, the first thing is it, it becomes this weird experiment of you're just sitting there and you know all the beats of the Lion King and this movie's just repeating the beats of the Lion King and you just are like, well, how are they going to fuck up this part? Well, how are they going to fuck up (laughs) this next part? And then without failure, they fuck up the next part. (laughs) So it's just this weird thing of like watching somebody completely screw up something that was, it's the, if, if it's not broke, don't fix it thing. It's like somebody, you know, trying to repair your car when it's running completely fine. (laughs) So, um, so there's that, um, the way I described the movie after I saw it was it's like, if you took the 1994, the lion King, if you took like 35 millimeter film reels of it and then buried them in the pet cemetery, this is what would come (laughs) up. (laughs) Where it looks like it, but it's not. And it's just like, you just need to kill it. (laughs) Um, The animation is completely fucked because it's photorealistic animals, which means that there's no emotion on any of their faces. So at times it feels like the movie is being narrated instead of spoken or the animals are talking like telepathically or something because like there's no movement on their faces. And especially in the songs, it's bizarre because instead of any type of choreography, they're just basically like walking in a straight line while a camera pans with them while they're singing Hakuna Matata and it just feels disembodied and like there's no I don't know it's just really weird and they make odd choices with the songs I'm not the first person to say this but they have like be prepared is like sing spoken instead of sung can you feel the love tonight takes place during the day (laughs) (laughs) Um, there's uh, I've heard people like really say, well, Timon and Pumbaa work. And I agree with Pumbaa. I think Seth Rogen is a good Pumbaa. And he's like, it, it saves the movie from being god awful when he's on screen. But Billy Eichner as Timon is just doing Nathan Lane. So I don't, I don't get it. But like, I know a lot of people like that performance. But, um, yeah, everything just feels like all the emotion is sucked out of the movie. It feels like, um, the site, like other people have said, and I agree with this, it's like when Gus Van Zant made Psycho. Yeah. And okay. It's the Lion King version of that. I also, I, this is a very specific analogy, but, um, 
okay, like one time in college, I was seeing a girl and she cheated on me. And then we reconciled and we had like our first night back together as a couple. And we were sitting there and we were watching The Lion King, the 94 one. And the entire time she's like acting like everything's fine and we're back on track and everything's cool. And inside I'm screaming and dying. (laughs) And then like, I couldn't even pay attention to the lion King because I was so upset, but it was happening at me at the same time. That's exactly how I felt watching the 2019 movie. It was like PTSD. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) So it was, it was real weird. And then, the opening scene where it's the circle of life and Simba's born and Rafiki holds him out over the, the, you know, the horizon and everything after that was over. And then it goes the lion King, like people in my audience were clapping. And I was just like, I hated that scene because I was just like, what are we even doing? Is this whole movie is going to be like this? And people were clapping. And I was like, are you fucking serious? <laughs> and then people clapped at the end. And, like, kids were dancing again. But this is, like, a new thing. Why do children dance at the end of movies so much now? I don't get it. Anyways. Nothing. Like, kids were dancing. People had, like, this great old time. And I'm like, what the fuck is even happening? And then two people sitting next to me who were, like, a younger couple, maybe, like, in their 20s. The girl goes, well, that wasn't as good as the original, but I still really liked it. And then the guy with her goes, I haven't even seen the original. (laughs) no. So I think if you've never seen the original... You might like this, but just know that you're making a giant mistake and you should just watch the original one. Like I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood this weekend. And when I walked out of the theater for that, I saw like three auditoriums playing The Lion King. And I just wanted to be like, oh, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Like to a poster. (laughs) Uh, Rewatchability on this film. Never again. No. Okay. Never ever again. I the only way I'd ever rewatch this movie is if like twenty years from now somehow Scream Factory came out with like a collector's edition and there was a retrospective documentary where they're just like, We really fucked up with that one. <laughs> like I would watch that, but I would never watch the movie unto itself. Now before I've got one more movie I want to talk about. Uh but quickly before we do that, are there any other notable films that you've seen since the last time we talked that you'd like to give a, a shout out to real quick? I do, yeah. Um, there's a few. Um, I saw an indie movie called Little Woods with Lily James and Tessa Thompson. It's on VOD now. Um, it was a limited release in April. And it's really good. It's just kind of like a, you know, a, a, an indie drama. It's about two sisters who one of them is um, constantly like getting themselves into trouble and the other sister has to bail them out and she does so by selling Oxycontin. And it's just a good like kind of just no frills drama. So I would recommend that. Um, I liked, uh, Annabelle comes home. I thought that was surprisingly good. It's, um, way better than most of the conjuring universe movies. Um, just very minimal and just kind of a spooky house in the suburbs type of movie. So I recommend that. And then the one I really, really recommend, I think is just like terrific um is midsummer that's the new ari aster movie uh directed he directed hereditary and it is such a great handling of tone and mood in a horror movie and it's very creepy and effective and the music's great and the lead performance by florence Pugh is unbelievable and it's scary and funny and just like everything I would want out of a horror movie. It's probably the best horror movie I've seen in like two or three years. So I would definitely recommend that one. Okay. Excellent. I haven't seen any of those, but Midsummer's certainly been on my radar. Now, the last movie I want to ask you about is uh, what's going to be interesting is by the time this episode gets released, which will be a couple days from now, I will have seen this movie. I'm actually going to see it tomorrow. Uh, and that is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, I have to tell you, I'm a little bit surprised by sort of some of the social media reactions I'm seeing from the, from people that have seen the film. And one person reached out to me yesterday. And, and, and of course, everything has been spoiler free. I really have no idea what this movie's about. And I, I want to keep it that way. And one person reached out to me yesterday and said, Dana, you're either going to love this or you're going to hate this. There's no middle ground on this film. And it seems to be a very, uh, seems to be a very mixed reception from people seeing the movie. So Adam, how is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? 
Uh, well, I'm I'm a really big Quentin Tarantino fan. I don't think he's made a bad movie. Even the ones that are, I would say, are lower on my list, I, I still think are very good. I am Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is one of my favorites. I think it's really fantastic, uh, just for, uh, in every way. Um, I'm. It's one of those types of movies that is so good it only makes me it makes me want to watch only that movie for a while um it's so good that it makes me think that other movies around it from 2019 are worse because it's not trying as hard as once upon a time in hollywood it's great on a textual level subtextually there's a lot going on like every scene seems to like you could read it in like two or three different ways and not in like an obnoxious way it's not like telling you you know like you know, we're really commenting on this. It's like stuff you can kind of think for yourself. Um, the performances are really strong. Like Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt are like top flight charismatic in the movie. The st- Margot Robbie is really terrific in a tricky role with Sharon Tate. Um, it's much more sentimental and sensitive than I thought that it was going to be. Um, it still has like a lot of the, the Tarantino trademarks, but I think it's more of a compassionate movie um, similar to Jackie Brown than I was expecting. Um, so I was really, really blown away by it. It's by far my favorite movie this year. All right. The question I'm going to ask you is just a simple yes or no answer. Is there yeah. the signature Tarantino over the top violence in this movie? Uh, yes. Okay. That's uh, that's all I want to know. That's as much as I want to know. I, I am again. That's, that's all I've been thinking about this weekend is how much I can't wait to go see that movie. So, and you said you've seen it twice now. So. Yeah, and I would I would see it again today. I mean, it's just that type of movie. So the rewatchability factor is one hundred percent on this film. Yes, yeah, Perfect. it's that's a terrific movie. It's the thing that I really love about him is unlike a lot of, and I'm I'm going to be throwing some shade at some of his contemporaries, but there's a lot of directors that people in film Twitter, like really positive, like, you know, unfailable, like they're just perfect all the time. And I think Quentin Tarantino movies are so much more rewatchable and mainstream in a good way and not just kind of like obtuse and um, pretentious as some of his other contemporaries are, but they're just as good. There's no like lesser quality because he's making it more audience friendly. Um, And I don't think that he gets enough credit for that. His movies are deep and also very accessible. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to see it. So Adam, if people want to follow you and check out your work, how can they do that? Yeah. um, I write weekly and podcast um, every once in a while over on F this movie. Um, You can find that at F this movie.com or F this movie.net. That's the letter F and then this movie. And then uh, you can follow me on Twitter at risky Adam. You can find me there. And uh, yeah, uh, if you ever want to, you know, talk movies or something like that, just send me a message. Outstanding. All right. And if you want to follow this show on Twitter, you can do so at Dana Buckler show. You can follow me on Twitter at Dana Buckler. There's also an Instagram page that's been set up. It's at the Dana Buckler show. So Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I appreciate this always. So we're, uh, it's the end of July. So we're August, September, October, probably going to have you back at the end of October to, uh, to round out the summer or excuse me, the fall movie season and uh, really looking forward to it. I'm really looking forward to that and not looking forward to Hobbs and Shaw. Yes. (laughs) And on that note, (laughs) I can't wait. I can't wait. We may have to pull up, but we may have to do a special bonus episode just so you can talk to me about Hobbs and Shaw, a movie that I will never see. So, yeah. If, if any of you want a teaser of kind of my history with the Fast and Furious franchise and where I currently sit on Hobbs and Shaw and that whole thing, you can go to F This Movie and listen to the Fate and the Furious podcast where I basically had a mental breakdown. Okay. All right. All right, everybody. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.